Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 2. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and open it right to the front as we consider a number of verses from the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Have you ever thought about why you were born where you were and when you were? I've sometimes daydreamed about what it would be like if I lived at a different place in a different time. For, for me, I think of what it would have been like to live at the time of the American Revolution and perhaps to have participated in the debates in Philadelphia at Constitution Hall about the wording of our founding document. Seems they did okay without me, though. But dream though we might, we came into the world at a place in time, and we had no say in the matter. The circumstances that led to our birth were all set up by actors that we did not know when we were conceived. And what brought our mothers to our place of birth involved a number of events that we only heard about after the fact, if at all. And the same, of course, was true of our parents. They, too, had no say in when and where they would be born. So if we didn't, and they didn't, then who did? Well, if you've been with us over the last several weeks in our series, in the opening chapters of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, then you know that our world is the product of the creative activity of God. And behind the circumstances of our lives, from the very beginning and even before the beginning, lies the planning and the activity of our Creator. And so you are not an accident, and you are not the product of chance, but rather we are each the considered and designed and fearfully and wonderfully made creatures of the omniscient Creator. But the Creator molds and makes and places and commands, and He does all of that without consultation with anybody else, including us. That's why the Bible says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And when the great Apostle Paul was standing before a group of philosophers in Athens, Greece, Acts chapter 17 tells us, he said this, from one man he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he, God, determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Friends, God decides all sorts of issues for your life before you ever come on the scene. And he asks the permission of no one. And so hearing all of that, you might say to yourself, well, then God is a dictator. And actually, you would be correct. The question is not, is he a dictator? That's very clear in Scripture. God is sovereign. And God consults no one in the things he chooses to do. The question then is not, is he a dictator? Because creation itself requires it. If you think about it, there could only be one at the beginning. The question is, what kind of dictator is he? Is he a malevolent dictator or a benevolent dictator? Does he ultimately have our good at heart when he determines what it is he's going to do? 
we know, we all know, that our world is not what it should be. And yet we know that God made it and God controls it. So that being the case, what does that say about God? I mean, the world is not all good, plenty bad. God made it. God controls it. What does that say about God? Is he good or not? So in our passage today in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to begin to see in some detail God's creation of mankind, his creation of humanity. And this chapter also tells us something important about the character of our creator. Verse number 4 of chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, when verse 4 starts out, this is the account. It's a succession from what precedes. That is, starting with verse 4 now and what follows is an account of what has preceded. And that's why it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Because what preceded was chapter 1, the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So beginning in verse 4, we're going to get what happened after the heavens and the earth were created. And that particular formula that starts verse 4, this is the account of, occurs 12 times in Genesis. And we won't look at all of those, but just to give you a flavor for how the whole book of Genesis is laid out, you have this first mention of this is the account of, which is now going to succeed what has preceded. But then the next time is in chapter 5 in verse 1. If you just hold your finger here in chapter 2, take a look at chapter 5. Adam, of course, has already been introduced in Genesis 2, where we are looking now. And then a number of things that happened with his immediate family line. But then verse 1 of chapter 5 says, this is the written account of Adam's family line. And then it goes from there. So what goes in chapter 5 succeeds what preceded it about Adam. And then one more in chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter 6 and verse 9. Just after the Bible introduces Noah to us, it says in verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. So what you have now in chapter 2 and verse 4 is the beginning of the rest of the story. The heavens and the earth are created, and here's what happened. And in particular, here's what happened on the sixth and final day of creation, the day that humanity was created. Now, in these verses in chapter 2, we're going to see several indications of the goodness of God in bringing mankind into the world that God made. And that's going to serve as a backdrop to what comes in chapter 3 that we'll see in a few weeks, the entrance of sin into God's world due to the disobedience of man. After having made unmistakable the absolute goodness of God that we're going to begin to see today, then it makes all the more inexplicable the fact that man would rebel against this good God. Now let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at Genesis chapter 2. Father, we come to you as each week, needy, asking you to open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, help us to have clarity of mind, as we contemplate the truths that you give us in your word. Because these are truths about you. These are truths about us. Help us to heed them and to apply them so that we can glorify and serve you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Now, every week, most of you know that we insert in your program an outline for that morning's message. And so you have one in the program. And if you don't have that out already, I encourage you to look at it. I want to look at three major points from a portion of Genesis chapter 2 today. The first is this. This passage teaches us that God puts us in a good place. God puts us in a good place. We're going to see that place, as most of you know, is a place called Eden and actually a garden within this region that is called Eden. But God puts us in a good place and he puts us in this good place for good reasons. And I have some of those reasons listed for you in your outline. The first is this. He puts us in this good place of relationship, a good place of relationship. Now, where do I get the idea that God, in placing man where he has, in Genesis chapter 2, has done so as a good place of relationship? Well, again, verse number 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Notice, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, notice the name, the Lord God. In chapter 1, you don't have that name at all. Throughout chapter 1, the name of God, translated simply God, is the Hebrew title Elohim. And it emphasizes the majesty of God and the creative activity of God. Here for the first time now, you have him referred to as the Lord God. It's used 20 times in chapter 2 and chapter 3. The Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. Why is that? Why does the writer, Moses, move from chapter 1 exclusively Elohim, the the creative, majestic God, and now, at the beginning of chapter 2, introduce him as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim? Here's why. Yahweh is the personal name of God. And what Moses is emphasizing now to us is that our God, who is this majestic creator, is also a relational God. He's Yahweh Elohim. Not just above us, not just transcendent and above his creation, but eminent and within his creation. God is a relational God. We've already seen this back in chapter 1, an allusion to the fact that God did not create because he was lonely, but let us make man in our image. And throughout eternity, God has always existed as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's God's very nature, then, to be relational, and He has made us for relationship with Him. So in chapter 2, as it focuses on and expands the creation of man on day 6 from chapter 1, it's focusing on the fact that Yahweh is this relational God. You find this theme throughout Scripture. Here at the very beginning, but then throughout Scripture, you could trace this theme of God's intention to have a people of his very own and then to say of those people that are his very own things like he says in Leviticus 26, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And then again in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. The very beginning of the Bible, you find this emphasis upon the relational aspect of God with his highest creature, mankind. 
And then you find it referred to throughout the pages of Scripture. And then at the very end, second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, the Bible says this. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Do you see that the bookends of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then throughout in between, God is emphasizing They will be my people, and I will be their God. It is the Lord God who made the earth and the heavens. And this is true then for all people, even outside of the beginning, outside of Eden. When speaking to those same philosophers in Athens, Greece, that I mentioned earlier, as recorded in Acts chapter 17 in your Bible, Paul, who was speaking to them, said, God who made us, To know Him intuitively. God made all people to know of His existence, have a conscience with regard to His existence and matters of right and wrong. God made us all to know Him intuitively so that, Paul says in Acts 17, we might reach out for Him though He is not far from every one of us. This good God puts us in a good place for the purpose of relationship. I say in your outline as well, He puts us not only in a place of relationship, but a place of significance. A place of significance. Now, where do we get that in Genesis chapter 2? Again, verse number 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made, now notice, the earth and the heavens. To this point, it's always the heavens and the earth. And now there's this shift... A purposeful shift to the earth and the heavens. The earth, for the first time now, is mentioned first. And the reason for that is, God is now going to focus upon His highest creature, humanity, and the work now that God is going to give to humanity to carry out on the earth. And this earth that God has placed us for this important, significant work that He is going to assign to humanity. This earth is a good earth. So God is good in giving us our assignment, in giving us significance. But the actual earth, the place at which this is going to happen is good as well. How do we know this? Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 31. The last verse of the opening chapter says, And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So God makes this very good creation, this very good earth, And now the center of attention moves away from the expanse of the universe and the glory of the universe to hone in on earth and the work that's going to be done there, and in particular, those who are going to do it, humanity. God gives a significance, an importance, a dignity to humanity by assigning them work to do on His behalf, on earth. Now, friends, that means a number of things. Among them, dignity and human dignity comes from God. It's inherent in humanity because humanity is made in the image of God and humanity is made for God. Dignity comes from God. It is not conferred on people. And so we spoke in last week's message about the same-sex marriage ruling 
And it came at an opportune time for us since God established marriage in Genesis chapter 2. But part of the debate regarding that centers around whether or not dignity should be conferred on people by virtue of allowing them to participate in this thing called marriage. But you see, dignity is not conferred by the government or by a law or by anyone outside of Almighty God. And when you remove dignity from being an inherent value given from God to humanity, then humanity is demeaned and that value that can be conferred by the government or others, now hear this, can be taken away by the government or others. And that's why our founders were absolutely correct when they said that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Who confers those? Our creator. And God does that, the creator, right at the very beginning. A place of relationship, a place of significance. It means dignity comes from God, not from outside. It's inherent in humanity, but it also means this, that every morning you and I can rise knowing that right now counts forever. That the work that I do for God, Monday through Saturday, every day, whatever that work is, counts forever. Because it's significant, because it's been assigned by Almighty God and given to us and to us alone as His creatures who can carry it out. A good God puts us in a good place. A place of relationship. A place of significance. Thirdly, a place of enjoyment. A place of enjoyment. Verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now if you've been paying attention in the weeks that we've been going through Genesis chapter 1... You know that on day three, vegetation was created. So why does this appear to say there's no plant life? And some have seen this as a contradiction then in the Bible. In fact, some have seen Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 as competing creation narratives. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're absolutely consistent. We'll see how this is consistent with the plant life created on day three in just a moment. But what you have in Genesis chapter 1 is the overall account of the six days of creation. And then the beginning of chapter 2, in the first three verses, God ceasing his creative activity on the seventh day. And then you have, beginning in verse 4 now, picking up with day number 6, the crowning achievement of God's creation. And giving more detail about that, the creation of man on day number 6. So how do we harmonize what verses 5 and 6 say about there being no shrub appearing on the earth, no plant had sprung up, with the fact that chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, say that God on day 3 did in fact create plants. What does not say that there is no plant life in verse number 5, but that there's not every type of plant life that has yet appeared. In fact, that word every is actually in the Hebrew. And many of the English translations, for whatever reason, leave that word untranslated. And so you could actually read this now. Not every shrub had yet appeared. 
and not every plant had yet sprung up. And so on day number three, some were created and then there were others that were yet to appear and to to spring up. The two terms that are used in verse five for shrub and for plant, they're two different kinds of vegetation and they're not referred to in chapter one, verses 11 and 12 on the third day of the creation week. That first term shrub refers to non-edible, uncultivated plants that grow in the wild. And these include thorns and thistles and cactus. The word translated plant refers to any non-woody, edible plant, but plants that require human cultivation. And that would include things like cereal crops, rice, vegetables, and herbs. So before day six, when man is created, you don't have man to cultivate those that require the cultivation yet. And since there's no man, there's been no sin yet. That'll come in chapter three. And therefore, no shrubs like thorns and thistles and cactus. Because you remember where they came from? They came as a result of man's sin. Chapter 3 and verse 17. After the man and the woman have sinned, God pronounces consequences on them. In verse 17, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil... You will eat food from it all the days of your life. Verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So to put it another way, at this point, man has not come on the scene to mess things up with sin or to cultivate those plants that require such cultivation. Verse 5 tells us that there are other types that had not yet appeared because there was not only no man to do it or no man to mess it up by sin and thus produce its consequences, but also because there was no rainfall. Now, verse 6 tells us that God supplied the water by, it's translated a mist, sometimes translated a, a stream. So God supplied for that which was needed, but not through rainfall. And rainfall points to something that's going to happen just a few chapters ahead in chapter number 7. It points to the later consequences of sin in the flood. Chapter 7 and verse 4 says this. God says, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. But at this point, that hasn't happened. On day number 6 of creation. So this good God has placed them in a, put them in a, a very good, a very good place. And it's a place for their enjoyment. There are no thorns. There are no thistles. There are no cacti. God has created it for them, for their enjoyment. And verse 16 of chapter 2, God says to Adam, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. God gave them free access, eat, as it were, to your heart's content. And friends, that good God, even though we are this side of the fall, this side of the entrance of sin into God's good world, that good God still gives us all things richly to enjoy, the Bible tells us. In your New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The very beginning of creation, God is intent on making sure that every one of us knows 
who he is. He is the great creator God, but he is also the benevolent good dictator who gives us these good things. And verses 10 through 14 supply further evidence of good from the hand of God. Verse 10. A river watering the, watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. That's a curious five verses. Because it mentions lands that we don't know what they are. And it mentions rivers, two of which we have so named to this day. Tigris and Euphrates in modern day Iraq. So of the lands mentioned here, we don't know where they are for reasons I'm going to give in a moment. And of the four rivers, only two of the names are in current use. Those two great rivers in Iraq, the Tigris and Euphrates. Now, you need to understand this, friends. Wherever Eden was, that place is no longer. Now, why is that? You see, something happened to change the topography of the earth. Something happened later. And that something, we've already alluded to, that something is the universal flood of Noah's day. So wherever Eden was, it is no longer because of the flood. The topography of the earth was radically altered as a result of this universal flood. So where the original Tigris and Euphrates were, we don't know. We know that there are two great rivers in Iraq called that now. So why would you have a couple of rivers called Tigris and Euphrates that are boundaries for Eden? And then Eden, like the rest of the earth's topography, is radically altered. And yet, after the flood, you still have something called the Tigris and Euphrates. Here's why. The use of names today that were names in Eden, like the Tigris and Euphrates, is due to what is called linguistic borrowing. And you find evidences of this uh, in a number of places, but even in recent times. You find people coming over from Britain, for example, to settle in the New World, in New England or other places. And so one commentator says that this new towns established by British settlers in North America and Australia and New Zealand were frequently assigned names that were familiar place names in the land they had left like Liverpool or Hamilton or Oxford or Sheffield or Brighton. Similarly, features in the post-flood world were given names familiar to those who survived the flood. And so Noah or Noah's sons knew of the names. They used those names or someone after them to whom they had passed that on used those names. Now, this passage, though, points to the goodness of God. I just wanted to deal with that so you all... (laughs) Every time I'm studying for these passages, I look at something and I go, now I know people are going to be reading that. I'm going to keep talking and they're going to be hung up on that thing if I don't talk about it. Okay, So I talked about it so you're not hung up on it anymore, right? So we're back together again. And this passage indicates the goodness of God by mentioning gems of gold and of onyx. Saying that in these places that were in Eden, 
God had these kinds of precious minerals, minerals and to this day now, as Moses writes, after the flood and, of course, after creation, there are these places, he's referring to places at, at his time that have golden onyx. They're not the same places as, as Eden. But it points to the fact that God was good. Now hear this, God was good and God still is good. Now if the places with those names are not the same, then why mention them at all? As I've said, it's to point to the goodness of God. But here are these two reasons that Moses mentions this, even though Eden is not as it originally was, and we don't know where it was. It's to emphasize that Eden was a real historical place. And so river names are mentioned and places are mentioned. Eden is not a myth. Eden really existed, and Eden will exist again in the future. And secondly, to emphasize that just as God supplied in Eden, he continues to supply today. Now, with all of that, pointing to this good God, placing us, putting us in a good place. What kind of application can we make of that? Well, after the entrance of sin, friends, we may question the goodness of God. We shouldn't, but we sometimes do. Because all is not rosy in God's world. All is certainly not like it was in Genesis chapter 2. And this God who has shown himself to be good from the very outset, we may now question his goodness. But remember these things. First, what messed it up is us. What messed it up is sin. And sin is on us. Secondly, Understand that even though this world is not what it was made to be and is not what it one day will be, even though we live in a fallen world, the worst aspects of fallenness are still exceptions rather than the rule. It should be instructive for you and me that we are surprised by suffering. In a fallen world, as rebellious sinners against a holy God, we should be surprised by blessing. But instead, we're surprised by suffering. Why are we surprised by suffering? Because God's rule is blessing and good given to all of his creatures. And so we complain when things don't go right. The truth is we should be shocked when they go right. Living in a fallen world. You think of people in the worst conditions. And I've been to some of those. I've been to India. People living in squalid conditions. But hear this. People live in squalid conditions not because God has not supplied, but because sinful people have mismanaged. And then lastly, please understand that whatever my circumstance, your circumstance, other than hell, because I'm a sinner in rebellion against God, yea, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, thanks be to God, but because of my sin, anything that I have better than hell is more than I deserve. A good God, a good God puts us in a good place. Secondly, in your outline, God puts us in a good position. A good position. And that position includes, firstly, I say in your outline, to live under him. To live under him. Verse 7. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now I say that means that God has positioned us to live under him. Why do I, why do I say that? Because 
Man has, in just a few verses, descended from the lofty heights of chapter 1 and verse 26. Alone among God's creatures, made in the image of God, made in God's likeness, made to reflect God back to God. Alone among all of his creatures. Man has this lofty position. And now you come to chapter 2 and this detail about the creation of man on day 6. And it says he's formed from the dust of the ground. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And that is God putting us in our place. Reminding us that we were made from dust. And you remember the Bible will then remind us to dust we shall return. And so, yes, we are made in the image of God. And yes, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And all of those things are true. But we were made by God and under God from the dust of the ground. The word that's translated ground is Adama in Hebrew. That's where Adam got his name, ground, (laughs) dirt. And when it says in verse number 7, the Lord God formed, the word for formed is to mold as a potter. It's used elsewhere in your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 29 says this, Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, You did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, You know nothing? God is reminding us then that being made out of the dust of the ground, that I am the one who molds you and forms you, and you are to live life under me. Jeremiah 18, like clay in the hand of the potter, God says, so you are you in my hand. I ask you, friend, does that scare you? Does it scare you to be in the hand of the potter? It should not. We should have a holy reverence for the fact that God is first and God is chief and we are under him. But this relational God that has made us for relationship with him does not say this in order to in order to scare us, but in order for us to have a proper reverence, a proper fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. And if we are in relationship with this God, then to be in his hand is the best place we could possibly be. A good God puts us in good position under him, and I say in your outline, and a position to live with him. To live with him, under him and with him. Verse 7 again, God breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living being, that is a living soul. Now he breathed into him the breath of life, and the breath of God throughout your Bible is the Spirit of God. God made man a spiritual being in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. He breathed into him spiritual life, the breath of life, so that now now that this body that was formed from the dust of the ground is now animated by spiritual life. And this is distinguished, as is the image of God, from all others of God's creation. So that man is not just matter... Not just material, not just physical, but immatter, immaterial. So that our behavior is not just getting the machinery right. And the way we think is not just a matter of what the gray matter does. The way we think is a combination of, yes, the physical component, the gray matter, the brain but also the spirit operating on the brain. 
And we're going to see in the second hour today in a series I'm starting called Mind Games that the mind is more than the brain. We are more than matter, and it has a number of implications for us. And God has put us in a position to live with him because we are spiritual beings, living souls that can live with him forever. And then lastly, a position not only to be under him and with him, but to love him. To love him. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Let me just stop there. Sometimes we say the Garden of Eden, and that's, that's all good. It's okay. It's a good phrase. But Eden was actually a larger region, and the garden was a part of it in the east part of Eden. And in fact, Adam and Eve not only had the garden, but they had Eden. They, had, they could go outside the garden. So they had every tree that they could eat from bountifully. They had the run of the place, as it were, and God planted, God himself planted this garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God says you can have all of this, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, You shall surely die. We will get to chapter 3 in a few weeks and see what happened with that. But what is this good and and evil? Here's what it is. It means that mankind, if they eat of that tree, would become aware of all things, things that are good and things that are bad. Prior to partaking of that tree in chapter 3, humans were innocent and only had experience and knowledge of good things. And now we have the ability to do good or evil. Not just good, good or evil. And the question then is, which are we going to do? Are we going to choose to love God? Are we going to choose to love ourselves first? And that's why the first and greatest commandment is given in the first five books of your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus said when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, if you love me, keep my commands. And so God puts us in a place to love him, giving us the ability, the will to choose to love him. Puts us in a good place, in a good position, and now very quickly and lastly, we will expand on this next week. God puts us in a good partnership. In a good partnership. What follows now, beginning in verse 15... Is God telling Adam, this is the work that you're to do. You are to till the garden. You are to cultivate the place that I have, that I, I have put you. But then he will go on to say, it's not good that man be alone. And he will create the woman for the man, this partnership. Now, here's what I want you to get today. And then we will look at this partnership in two weeks. Next week is the Lord's table. But what I want you to get today is this. This partnership is for the purpose of serving God. Man was placed in the garden to serve God. And God says, it is not good that he be alone. I'm going to give him a helper suitable for him. That helper was given. Marriage was created. Man for the woman, woman for man. In order for the two of them to serve God together. And that then will inform 
how our marriages are to be structured. So with all of that, what does it mean for us this week? What does it mean for you as you go in your work of day world, into your neighborhoods, into your homes? I have a take-home truth for you at the bottom of your outline. God puts us in a position to serve. God puts us in position to serve. Now, here's what that means. Whatever position God has you in right now, whatever position God's going to have you in this week, whatever circumstances God is going to allow into your life, you must remember from the opening pages of Scripture that the one who has allowed that circumstance is the good God, your good creator, Yahweh Elohim, the God who has made you for relationship with Him, the God who has made you to enjoy His world, but the God who has made you with the privilege, the privilege, do you hear me, of serving Him. And every one of those circumstances you will encounter are always for that purpose. Now, the only way you'll do that is if you have a relationship with this good God who has shown his goodness most profoundly in sending God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to mend the severed relationship that existed between God and us, the Creator and his creatures, because of sin entering his world. Now, how do you establish a relationship then with this God? You realize that you are a sinner. You recognize that Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent of your sin. God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. Everyone here should do business with God as we pray. If you're someone who has already come to God through Jesus, then thank God for his goodness. Thank God for his goodness in the circumstances in which he has allowed you. Thank God that you can see his goodness because you have a relationship with him through the Lord Jesus. And if there are any here who have never come to God through Jesus, now's the opportunity. This good God graciously offers you that opportunity. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So that we know why we are here. We know who we are because we have been told by you who you are. And what your purposes are for us in your world. Thank you, Lord, for not leaving us to grope in the darkness. Lord, because of sin, our hearts and our minds are darkened. and We are not able to see. We're not able to see you clearly, not able to see ourselves clearly. We need the the light that your Holy Spirit turns on in our hearts. Thank you for doing that for me at the age of 19. And I thank you for, in this sacred moment, doing that with others in this room right now. Showing them that they are living without purpose and that they have not seen you as the good God that you are. And they have not loved you as they were made to do. And that they are coming to you, prompted by your Spirit, receiving the gift of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for them and lived for them. And Lord, for those of us who have done that, oh Lord, we are, I am, we are forgetful hearers. So Lord, help us this day to recommit our thoughts to the good God who has made us and assigned us the privilege of serving you in your world, to bring you glory and to ultimately redound to our good. 
We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.